Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the current macro environment in the wake of the April employment report and how investors should think about positioning as the economy continues to shift closer to reopening. Joining me here on the line today for the conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, good morning to you. Hope you had a nice weekend and looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, good morning, Dan. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice, uh, relaxing weekend. Hope you had one as well. Glad to hear, Jason. Thank you very much. We did receive the employment report as well as revisions for March. The results, they took markets by surprise a bit, yet investors seem to have been relatively unfazed as we did witness the rally in risk assets continue. So, Jason, from your vantage point, how did you interpret this market response and what do you believe investors are most focused on at the moment. Well, let's start with the data itself. Uh, you know, the market was expecting about a million new jobs created in April, uh, and the number report on Friday was 266,000 plus some downward revisions from uh, the strong March uh, number. So definitely well below expectations. It caught the market by surprise. Uh, you know, the initial reaction in the market, you know, right after the news came out was sort of what you'd expect. Uh, interest rates declined. You know, the 10-year Treasury yield was down about nine basis points within a matter of minutes. Uh, on futures for the S&P 500 uh, were down. And this is before the market opened because the news came out at, at 8.30 a.m. Yet by the end of the day, the, the 10-year yield was basically unchanged, actually up very, very slightly, uh, whereas the S&P 500 was up 75 basis points. Um, so ultimately, it ended up being a situation where, at least for one day, the market response, uh, you could say, was you know bad news was good news for the market. Uh, and so, so my interpretation of what happened is, that ultimately, you know, the market responded favorably because of two reasons. One, they view that this is a reason why the Fed can be on hold for a little bit longer. Um, so I think that the thought that maybe the Fed could start talking about tapering as soon as the June FOMC meeting, uh, that's very unlikely to happen. That's probably a push back until at least August, maybe even September. So we get a reprieve of another, at least another three months, if not longer, on when the Fed is going to talk about tapering and, and very unlikely they do anything until year end. So all sequel, that's that's a positive for the market. So it takes sort of the Fed off the table for the time being. And then the other thing that sort of happened throughout the day on, on Friday was that investors, you know, started to you know believe that the jobs number was very noisy, that there was sort of quirks in the data due to some seasonality adjustments, other data such as like an actual absolute decline in retail, transportation, manufacturing, employment seemed odd. Uh, so ultimately, there was kind of a as the day went on, sort of a bit of dismissal of the data as being kind of noisy. Let's not put a lot of stock into it. The economy is still strong. The recovery is still strong. Growth will be good. And therefore, investors are able to kind of, you know, look through it, which I think is, is reasonable. You know, we don't want to put too much emphasis on one data point. Um, but the thing that I think what investors were focused on a little bit more was, you know, they're not worried so much about growth, but they're increasingly kind of worried about inflation. And, you know, the jobs number was kind of reinforcing that because the data was weak in part potentially because of, you know, supply side considerations which would be sort of inflationary. And that's sort of consistent with the asset classes that ultimately did the best on Friday, which are commodity prices being up. Um, you know, inflation expectations were up, you know, uh, you know, four basis points, even though interest rates were relatively unchanged. You know, value stocks, those are like energy and materials, you know, did well. That was for more inflation beneficiaries. So that was how, like, the market ultimately reacted, you know, 
bad news was good news, but I think the, you know, the concern increases not about growth, but it's about inflation. Well, thank you, Jason, for sharing with us your interpretation. I do want to revisit the Fed in a few moments, but maybe if we stick with the labor market, knowing that one instance, and I'm referring to the April employment report, is not indicative of a trend, which of course can also be said for the March employment report, which had an opposite effect in terms of taking investors by surprise. How do you anticipate, Jason, that the labor market recovery will progress as we make our way through the balance of the year? Well, the expectations for, you know, for the April job number was a million, but there was definitely, you know, some whisper numbers and people all the way you expect all the way up to, to 2 million jobs. It was also sort of thought that throughout the second quarter that we'd be averaging around 1 million jobs per month. And that certainly could still be the case. You know, we could get a very strong May number in June, and so the and then April numbers could be revised higher. But what it sort of suggests is that, you know, the recovery maybe be less second quarter front-loaded, so a very strong sort of recovery as the economy reopens, and more of maybe an elongated recovery through the summer, you know, into the fall for, you know, a variety of reasons. Um, you know, some of these supply-side constraints that people pointed to as why the number was weak on Friday – uh, such as, you know, high supplemental unemployment benefits that sh- will end by September. You know, schools should be fully reopened uh, by September, allowing, you know, people who have been forced to deal with kind of home care or homeschooling and sort of child care issues, they can go back to work. Uh, you know, pandemic fears are, that are still out there to some extent, those will all you know, further rebate, abate by September. So I think the, the, the path, um, you know, going forward has maybe changed, but not necessarily the destination. So I think by December, the outlook for how many jobs are recovered, the unemployment rate really hasn't really changed that much. But instead of a lot of it being pulled like front-loaded in the second quarter, perhaps now we're uh, having a more elongated path. Um, so the a change in path, not just the destination. But I think that, you know, I think that what the number also on Friday highlighted is that this is not going to be a smooth recovery. There are going to be issues that you know supply side, also maybe demand side, maybe companies, despite a lot of reports of job openings. They're looking for ways to, you know, save on labor, or employ different technology, and maybe won't look to hire as much as, as we expect. So uh, there's there's a lot of things kind of going on. I think we just can't assume that's going to be a very easy path going forward. I think what the Friday's number kind of just reinforces that point, and it's, you know, I think where we want to focus is where we're going to be in you know, six to nine months. That still should be roughly the same place. So maybe we can leave it there for the labor market. I do want to transition over to the Q1 reporting season. Of course, that's still in progress. The results have been knocking it out of the park, including those of tech, so to speak, as your colleague, Head of Equities Americas, David Lefkowitz, cited during last Thursday's CIO livestream event. So with all of that in mind, Jason, can you remind us of your take as to why more opportunity exists right now within cyclicals relative to growth? Well, just you know, starting with earnings uh, to recap for those not familiar, Q1 numbers have been fantastic. Uh, we're seeing you know revenue growth of seven percent. Uh, earnings are beating expectations by twenty four percent, which you know, that's a level that hasn't been experienced in, in many many years. And ultimately, we can see you know you know profit or earnings growth in Q1, you know up forty five percent. So very very strong results. Uh, yet you know even as the numbers are coming in you know, from mid April until like you know even through last week. The market was a bit of a kind of shrug in the shoulders, um, especially even on the growth side where, you know, mega cap tech companies had very, very strong numbers and yet the markets actually, you know, sold off slightly. Uh, so I think that kind of plays into the question ultimately of like, why do we think there's still more opportunities in cyclicals versus growth? There's really a few factors. Um, you know, one, the, the comments on the labor market being sort of more elongated recovery. I think that also kind of benefits the sort of reflation trade in which cyclicals have done well and better than growth. 
because it means growth stays elevated for a longer period of time, maybe inflation stays a little bit elevated for a longer period of time, that is good for cyclical sectors, good for value stocks, not necessarily good for, for growth stocks. Um, the, you know, the idea that there was a potential peak in growth that we were expecting in the second quarter as the economy opened up and we'd see it in jobs numbers, and once you get past this peak, things growth would still be high, but it'd be decelerating. That thesis may not play out. Maybe we're looking more at a plateau. And so plateauing of high, you know, you know, elevated growth, maybe not as high as expected, you know, high inflation or elevated inflation for a period of time. Also, again, that sort of benefits cyclical stocks. Uh, and inflation concerns, as I mentioned, are already kind of a little bit more maybe dominant than growth concerns. That all sequel sort of favors kind of you know, cyclical stocks. Uh, and then, you know, for growth stocks, this environment has also created some headwinds. Higher inflation leads to higher longer-term interest rates, and, and that's a headwind for, for growth stocks, which are have a lot of earnings far into the future. Uh, growth stocks have been a big beneficiary of sort of a momentum trade for much of last year. Uh, what we're seeing now is because the cyclical trade for the past six months, momentum is becoming more synonymous with things like energy and value stocks, less growth. Uh, and a lot of investors you know, were positioned for the assumption that we get peak growth, that this reflation trade would come to an end, and then kind of growth would resume its dominance. If we don't get that, if we get a plateau, well, that's another reason perhaps why they need to rotate back towards kind of cyclical stocks. So for both fundamental and technical reasons, we think that there's still you know, more room and opportunity in, in more the, the more cyclical areas, you know, value stocks versus growth stocks at this point in time. Thank you, Jason. And as we begin to close out, maybe we can touch on one final point. And I do want to circle back on the Fed. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and former Fed Chairman did make an interesting comment last week on monetary policy, namely the prospects for a rate hike depending on how market conditions evolve. So, Jason, can you refresh us on what we heard from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen? Might that have been a communication error or perhaps indicative of a potential shift in the Fed's thinking or policy stance? Well, what Janet Yellen said was a pretty generic comment, which is to the effect of that at some point interest rates might have to rise, you know, to deal with potentially higher inflation, which is not exactly a bold statement, but still it caught people by surprise. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, why it was sort of surprising was that you know, the Treasury Secretary usually stays out of the realm of, of you know, fiscal and monetary policy. Um, they leave that up to the Fed chair to kind of talk about you know, what could happen on that front. Uh, she also used the term we, when she said, you know, we have the tools to fight inflation. Uh, I mean, I think that may be just a reflection of the fact that she was the Fed chair for four years and she was at the Fed for many years. So there might be a little bit of muscle memory kicking in in her saying that. Um, it could also be a bit of a you know, Freudian slip as, as when she says we. It could also just be a generic statement, meaning like we, meaning policymakers, uh, like the Fed, have tools to fight inflation. So it is a you know, interesting statement. Um, you know, on its face value, not that you know, noteworthy. You know, not nothing new, but maybe more indicative of the um, you know kind of how there is a bit of a change in sort of the policy framework and the coordination, at least implicit, between fiscal and monetary policy. That that's kind of I think what maybe the markets, if you're reading between lines, how they interpret it, some of that. In terms of whether uh, so you could say it was a communication error. I mean, maybe it wasn't the best choice of language, but ultimately I think it was relatively innocuous. But I think it also doesn't really necessarily reflect, um, you know, a, a significant change in, in Fed policy. And in fact, the, the jobs number on Friday, I think of all sequel, you know, means the Fed is probably going to hold a little bit longer in terms of at least when they think about tapering and start tapering. Uh, and the markets also took out, uh, you know, they were pricing three rate hikes for 2023 and, and they took one out. So now they're only pricing two Fed rate hikes. On the assumption, perhaps the recovery, the jobs recovery would be a little bit slower 
than expected. And this has been a key area where the markets or the Fed has been focused on a strong, you know, labor market recovery to get maximum employment. But it's also the case that the Friday jobs number made the Fed's job a little bit harder because if this is supply side issues causing a little bit higher inflation and we get a slower jobs recovery than expected, that becomes a bit of an uncomfortable mix for for the Fed, you know, in terms of higher inflation, lower job you know, recovery. That's not a problem at the moment, but it could be at some point soon. So that's something to watch for. Well, Jason, thank you for the insights and clarity on a variety of timely items spanning today to the labor market, to corporate earnings, to monetary policy. So very productive conversation to begin the week. And Jason, we'll look forward to catching back up again with you soon. You're welcome. Today, we've been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Now for clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of any of the publications or blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where Podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.